the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us today. We'll hear from Jeff Hanen. He is the author of the An Uncommon Guide to Retirement. And we'll also talk about what's happening within the Southern Baptist denomination. They're facing a reckoning following sexual abuse um, allegations and a new report revealing how it got to where it eventually got. That's coming up later in the second hour of today's program. Well, as you've probably heard by now, an elementary school, I tell you, it pains me to just talk about. I sat at my desk trying not to weep like a baby at the thought that 14 children and a teacher were killed in an elementary school. In that school, it was a second through fourth grade uh, building. That means they were seven, eight, and nine. It's the 27th school shooting in 2022 and the second mass shooting in 10 days. So it's painful to bring it up. It exposes a fault line of evil in our country that really is a fault line that runs all across the globe. And what we desperately need more than anything else is Jesus. We can talk about public policy. We can talk about the individual and so on. But this just exposes how desperately we need to be praying for revival and awakening that God would move uh, across our land. Um, and I, I fear that things will only get worse. But let's talk about what actually happened. Uh, there was an elementary school shooter. He himself was 18. He apparently was involved in a domestic incident in which he killed his grandmother before making his way to the school. Now, there were some rumors that he was um in a shootout with Border Patrol agents before barricading himself inside the school building, that has been proven to be false. There was no um, involvement of Border Patrol. There's no indication he was from that area. There's no indication he had crossed the border at some point. So that is a false, um, false rumor. But he apparently shot his grandmother before heading to the school. It's not clear what the connection to the school was, if that was his intention, what his motivation might have been. We don't know. But the elementary school shooter was 18. He killed 14 kids and a teacher. He apparently had posted pictures of his assault rifles on Instagram. He messaged random uh, a girl to hint at an attack one hour before and posted TikTok clips saying kids be scared in real life. Now that is yet to be confirmed, that part of the story. The governor, Greg Abbott, the governor of Texas, confirmed this afternoon that 14 students and one teacher were, in fact, killed in the shooting at the elementary school in Uvalde. Now, there's a possibility those numbers could increase. The governor said that the gunman was 18 years old. Salvador Roma is his name. It was later clarified uh, to be him. So that Ramos is the actual last name. Uh, He was shot and killed during the shooting at the elementary school by law enforcement. He's believed to have been killed in their effort to put an end to what was going on there. As I mentioned, he had posted photos of his um, guns on Instagram and shortly before the shooting messaged a stranger hinting that he was planning an attack. 
He tagged a stranger in a photo of his gun and wrote, I got a little secret. I want to tell you, be grateful. I tagged you. She replied, no, it's just scary. Well, Uvalde, uh, Uvalde Memorial Hospital confirmed initially that two children were brought in dead on arrival and that they were treating many more. It was only later that we learned of the actual number, at least up to this point. The school district said that the uh, city's civic center would be used to uh, reunify parents with their children. And that uh, has to have been a very painful scene as parents having no idea whether or not their particular children survived this shooting, if they would ever be reunited. And for 14 of those parents, grief set in, a grief that's unspeakable. President Biden, who currently... um, Uh, was flying home. I believe he's touched down now from his trip to Japan, is going to address the nation from the Roosevelt Room of the White House this evening at about 5.15 Pacific time, 8.15 Eastern time. So it's expected that more information, or at least a comment from the president, will be made. One can only hope that this will not be politicized, that the nation would have an opportunity to grieve, um, and that uh, fingers won't be pointed to anyone other than this individual. Uh, because we still don't know the full story. Well, again, 14 children and a teacher have been killed at a Texas elementary school by an 18-year-old gunman who was shot dead by police. The governor named uh, the shooter. Um, His uh, student victims were uh, from 7 to 9 years old. Uh, He shot and killed horrifically and incomprehensibly 14 students and a teacher, the governor said at a press conference. There are families that are in mourning right now, and the state of Texas is in mourning with them. I would add the nation mourns for those children and their parents, their families. Um, The shooter's social media was full of photos, as I mentioned. Um, He was equipped with a handgun and possibly a rifle, although that's not yet clear. He allegedly shot his grandmother. Uh, whose condition is not yet known, but I, I, it is believed to that he did, in fact, <clears throat> excuse me, end her life. A White House press secretary uh, said that the president had been briefed of the shooting and would be speaking later this evening on the uh, the details and it, certainly his response to what has happened. Uh, as the program began, the vice president took to the podium and she offered some remarks. I don't have those remarks because she was speaking as I am speaking Um, But we'll try to bring that to you as quickly as possible. Also, we learned that there was an attempt to end the life of former President George W. Bush. ISIS-affiliated suspect was arrested for an alleged plot to kill the president. The former president, a man affiliated with the group, has been charged for his participation in a plot to murder the former president that involved scouting out his Dallas home in Texas. The man affiliated with ISIS is under arrest for his participation in this alleged plot. And apparently there were some individuals who revealed um, the the effort and that that's how it was ultimately discovered. We'll tell you more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a man affiliated with ISIS is under arrest for his participation in an alleged plot to assassinate former President George W. Bush. 
An Iraqi citizen living in Columbus, Ohio, has been charged federally with an immigration crime and with aiding and abetting a plot to murder former United States President George W. Bush. That's the statement the Justice Department made in a press release today. Well, the statement added that the suspect, identified as a 52-year-old, originally came to the United States in September of 2020 on a visitor visa and filed for asylum in March of 2021, which is pending review. According to the Department of Justice, he exchanged money with other individuals in an attempt to illegally smuggle foreign nationals into the United States and specifically planned to help four Iraqi nationals come into the United States across the southern border to help kill Bush. The charging documents state that uh, the perpetrator launched the plot in retaliation of the Iraqi deaths during Operation Iraqi Freedom. The U.S. Secret Service takes all threats to our protector, uh, protectees seriously, a Secret Service spokesman special agent said in a statement. In order to maintain operational security, the Secret Service does not discuss the means and methods used to conduct our protective operations or matter of protective intelligence. It's not clear if any steps have been taken to increase security around the former president. President Bush has all the confidence in the world in the United States Secret Service and our law enforcement and intelligence community, says the chief of staff for the office of George W. Bush, Freddie Ford, in a statement. The United States sanctioned ISIS facilitators this week in Syria and Turkey in an effort to expose and disrupt the network of violent extremists. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said on Monday that by designating them, the Biden administration aims to expose and disrupt an international ISIS facilitation network that has financed ISIS recruitment, including uh, vulnerable children in Syria. Meanwhile, Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign manager said that Clinton agreed to leak allegations that the Trump organization had a secret communications channel with Russia's Alpha Bank to the media during his Friday testimony in the Michael Sussman false statement trial. Mook said that he and his campaign and the campaign were unsure of the evidence's credibility at the time and that part of the purpose of leaking it to the press was to have a reporter run it down further and vet it out. Well, after a discussion with senior campaign staff, Mook said that he discussed it with Hillary as well and that she agreed to their decision to hand the evidence over to the press. Well, Sussman, a former partner at the Perkins Coy law firm, is on trial for allegedly misrepresenting himself to them, the FBI general counsel James Baker, in the fall of 2016 when he presented the evidence to Baker. Well, the prosecution alleges that he brought the evidence to Baker as an attorney for both the Clinton campaign and tech executive Rodney Joff while telling Baker he was bringing the evidence to help the bureau. Baker, who had known Sussman for years after working with him at the Department of Justice, testified Wednesday that he was 100 percent confident that Sussman said he wasn't representing a client when they met. A text message from Sussman to Baker from the day prior reads, Jim, it's Michael Sussman. I have something time sensitive and I need to discuss. Uh, Do you have availability for a short meeting tomorrow? I'm coming on my own, not on behalf of a client or company. Want to help the bureau? Thanks. End quote. The former FBI general counsel said that he would have treated the meeting and subsequent investigation differently had he known Sussman was coming forward on behalf of the Clinton campaign. The evidence that Sussman delivered to Baker came in the form of domain names system data that allegedly showed frequent communications between servers associated with the Trump organization and Russia's Alpha Bank. That has since been discredited. The data was provided to Sussman by Joff, an executive at the cybersecurity firm Newstar, 
which uh, was also being represented by Sussman as part of his role as the partner in the Perkins Coy law firm. Well, the FBI agent Scott Hellman testified Tuesday that he was immediately skeptical of the data and accompanying analysis that suggested illicit communications between the campaign and Alpha Bank. In fact, the quality of the analysis was so poor that Hellman questioned whether its source had a mental disability in the private chat with FBI colleagues. Opposition research firm Fusion GPS, which Perkins Coy hired to work on behalf of the Clinton campaign, translated the DNS data into layman's terms and pitched it to various reporters, including a writer for Slate. We certainly hope that he would publish an article, former Fusion GPS employee testified. Well, the uh, writer obliged at State, uh, Slate rather, touting the uh, claims in the article published in October of 2016, a little over a week before Election Day. Under questioning, he explained that, or rather, she explained that she was conversant but not an expert on DNS data. Well, prominent Democratic lawyer Mark Elias, who worked alongside Sussman at G- Fusion GPS in 2016, testified earlier in the week that efforts to publicize opposition research can be helped if the FBI begins looking into the claims, as the fact of an investigation can encourage media attention, an attempt to manipulate the outcome of the election. Though he insisted that he didn't think Sussman's decision to bring the Trump alpha evidence to Baker benefited the Clinton campaign. Well, after the Trump alpha bank evidence was made public via media leaks, Clinton touted the claim on Twitter, pretending that she had no idea and was just learning alongside everyone else what the allegations might have been. Well, in other news, more a bit closer to home, permits are going to be required now through September the 5th for drivers planning to visit the Waterfall Corridor along the historic Columbia River Highway. I know, I'm shocked too. The Oregon Department of Transportation said the timed access permit, uh, permits rather, are part of a pilot project aimed at reducing the number of cars through the popular area, particularly near Multnomah Falls. The permits are required for personal vehicles traveling between Bridal Vale and Ainsworth State Park. They cost $2. They're required seven days a week between 9 a.m. and 6 p.m. Visitors can buy permits online two weeks before their visit date. So if you just happen to be hanging out and decide, well, I think we'll take a, a drive to the waterfalls, not so much. You have to have that idea two weeks before your plan. Permits will be checked near Exit 28 at Bridal Vale and Exit 35 at Ainsworth State Park. The Oregon Department of Transportation says there will also be a limited number of same-day free permits for places like Gateway to the Gorge, a visitor center in Troutdale, and the Cascade Lots Historical Museum. Well, aside from the waterfall corridor permits, time-use permits are also required during the same time period for people who use the Interstate 84 parking lot to visit Multnomah Falls. The Columbia River Gorge is one of Oregon's most iconic and popular destinations. Multnomah County Commissioner Lori Stegman in a, a news release says, but for both residents and visitors, the traffic congestion has contributed to frustration and long waits. And Lord knows we don't have patience in the 21st century. With a permit pilot program, our goal is to provide easier access while improving the safety and experience for those traveling through the gorge's majestic beauty. So there you have it. You got to plan ahead. In other news, um, President Biden seemed to praise high gas prices as an incredible transition Americans must go through. Well, the record high national, uh, rather national average for a gallon of gasoline regular is $4.56, although much higher here in the Pacific Northwest and um, in some other states. 
Well, to transition away from fossil fuels, the president suggested via the high gas prices being experienced nationwide is just something we have to face. Of course, we don't have the infrastructure to move away from fossil fuels as of yet. But the the president made the statement on gas prices during a joint press conference with the prime minister from Japan on Monday. Here's the situation. And when it comes to the gas prices, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that, God willing, when it's over, will be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. I don't know how long he thinks this is going to go, but it's going to take considerable time. Uh, to make it possible to end our dependence on fossil fuel. But the president said, seeming to justify or praise those sky-high prices Americans face at the pump. His comments come amid a stretch of record-high gas prices, which the American Automobile Association says is unprecedented. The president says, well, it's a good thing and absolutely necessary. Well, two of the most prominent uh, Republicans running for governor in Michigan are ineligible after failing to submit enough valid signatures to make it on the ballot. Republicans seem to have lost two of their most serious contenders for the gubernatorial election there in Michigan. Chief James Craig of the Detroit Police Department and businessman Perry Johnson, two of the most prominent Republicans running against Governor Gretchen Whitmer, both failed to produce the valid signatures necessary to get on the ballot. Gubernatorial candidates are required to submit 15,000 valid signatures to appear on the state ballot. According to the Bureau, the affected candidates were victimized via a series of petitioners who obtained nothing but invalid or otherwise unusable signatures, putting them well below the mark. Michigan's petition process is fatally flawed because it easily allows criminals to victimize candidates for public office and their thousands of supporters who legitimately signed petitions, said one of the candidates of the situation in a campaign statement on Monday. We must bring quality to the petition process by allowing campaigns a mechanism to compare signatures that are gathered by circulators with signatures on the qualified voter file to ensure their legitimacy. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to give you an opportunity to win a pair of tickets to the Maverick City concert that's coming up in July. All the important details in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know by now, there's going to be a great concert coming to the Portland metro area the Moda Center on the 20th of July, and we want to make sure you're there so you can win a pair of tickets to see Maverick City Music with Kirk Franklin and others, Jonathan McReynolds and House Fires. Okay, I have no idea who House Fires is, but they're probably good. Anyway, Maverick City Music and Kirk Franklin are bringing their friends with them, and we're giving away um, uh, some tickets, but I want to let you know there are two ways to um, to win access to the concert. Two ways. You can listen to this program, and we'll be giving away tickets through um, early part of next month, or you can enter online at kpdq.com. You can also, of course, buy your tickets, and all the details about the concert can be found on our website as well. But right now, we want to give a pair of tickets away to our fourth caller, and the number to call, 1-800-845-2162. 800-845-2162. Again, the concert is at the Moda Center here in Portland on the 20th of July, featuring Kirk Franklin, Maverick City Music, along with Jonathan McReynolds and House Fires. You can also enter to win online at kpdq.com. Caller number four, 800 845 Six, two. It's going to be an amazing night of worship. 
While continuing on with the news fueling the fire, the president appeared to praise ballooning gas prices as an incredible transition. Georgia voters turn out in record numbers despite the president and the media's Jim Crow claims. And a return to center, the D- center sender, rather, the D.C. archdiocese has been caught in an embarrassing email snafu over Speaker Pelosi's communion ban. The Roman Catholic archdiocese in D.C. mistakenly emailed a reporter seeking comment on its position regarding the San Francisco archbishop's decision to bar House Speaker Pelosi from California from receiving communion due to her stance on abortion after her reportedly uh, taking communion in D.C. on Sunday. Well, when the Washington Examiner reached out to the Archdiocese for comment, the outlet received an email stating that media requests on the subject will be ignored. In the Pennsylvania Senate runoff, the RNC has uh, stepped in against a McCormick lawsuit as Dr. Oz leads. And in a call to arms, an Afghan rebel group calls for Biden's support and warns of the risk of another 9-11 type attack if he doesn't come to their aid. Fearing rampant corruption, Republican lawmakers urged the president to halt efforts to empower the World Health Organization. In an unfortunate case of Biden, Biden, President Biden has gone over 100 days without doing any mainstream media interviews, during which time a multitude of new crises have gripped the country and the world. Offering a unique and illegal housing plan, Washington Democratic congressional candidate Rebecca Parson has a um, bold idea to get Congress to pass housing legislation, have a million people break into empty houses. Well, Parson, a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, is running to represent Washington's 6th Congressional District. She also suggested that um, minimum wage be $30 per hour. A new political action committee has formed Attempting to draft Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to run for president in 2024. Not clear if he's interested. Saying he's actually better than ever, Bill Maher pushed back against the notion that President Biden has made a mental decline in recent years. A progressive curriculum, a Christian book, in uh, rather a children's book, in New York City schools reportedly slams Mitch McConnell, praises Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and mocks religion. Defending Hillary, the Washington Post defended Ms. Clinton and claimed she didn't trigger the Trump-Russia probe, despite evidence to the contrary. And a Catholic critique, The View co-hosts, ripped Texas Governor Greg Abbott and former Attorney General William Barr for the death penalty and capital punishment support as a practicing as practicing Catholics. No word, however, on Pelosi or Biden, both Catholics, for their abortion support. In a return of the mask mandate, a Philadelphia school district reinstated their mask mandate for students and staff, citing increased COVID-19 cases. And President Biden says the U.S. will use military force to defend Taiwan. However, the administration walked it back. The Washington Post reports, speaking to reporters during his first trip to Asia as president, President Biden said the United States would defend Taiwan militarily if it came under attack by China, despite the U.S. policy of remaining vague on the subject. And that deterring Beijing from aggression in Taiwan and elsewhere was among the reasons it was critical to punish Russian President Vladimir Putin for his barbarism in Ukraine. Disclosed TV reports, Biden says the U.S. would defend Taiwan militarily against the invasion of China. And CNN, the White House, quickly downplayed the comments, saying they don't reflect a change in U.S. policy. It's the third time in recent months, including during a CNN town hall in October, that Biden has said the U.S. would protect Taiwan from a Chinese attack 
only to have the White House walk back those remarks. The question is, who is the president? Who's calling the shots? RNC research uh, says CNN, several administrative officials were caught off guard when Biden said, again, the U.S. would intervene militarily if China attacked Taiwan. This is not the first time twice before Biden had suggested the U.S. would intervene and his staff walked it back. A Russian envoy resigned over the war in Ukraine, saying, never have I been so ashamed of my country, end quote. Public criticism of Russian foreign policy from a government insider is rare. And the Associated reports that the veteran Russian diplomat to the U.N. office at Geneva says he handed in his resignation before sending out a scathing letter to foreign colleagues inveighing against the aggressive war unleashed by Russian President Vladimir Putin in Ukraine. Boris Bonderov, 41, confirmed his resignation in a letter delivered Monday morning. For 20 years of my diplomatic career, I have seen different turns of our foreign policy, but never have I been so ashamed of my country as on February 24th of this year, he wrote, alluding to the date of Russia's invasion. Hillel Noor writes that Russia's counselor to the United Nations in Geneva has resigned. Uh, never uh, and then quoting what uh, was said, U.N. Watch is now calling on all other Russian diplomats at the United Nations and worldwide to follow his moral example and resign. And again, The Washington Post reports Russian President Vladimir Putin has made it clear that dissent won't be tolerated, saying in March that the Russian people can distinguish between true patriots from scum and traitors. In an anticipated power grid overload, historic blackouts across the world are being anticipated. A convergence of events may press power facilities beyond capacity. Bloomberg writes that global power grids are about to face their biggest test in decades with electricity generation strangled in the world's largest economies. War, drought, production shortages, historically low inventories and pandemic backlash. Energy markets across the planet have been put through the ringer over the past year and consumers have suffered the consequences of soaring prices. But somehow things are on track to get even worse. And Hot Air writes that the North American Electric Reliability uh, Corporation has released its latest reliability assessment for the summer of 2022. And to put it mildly, the news is not good. In far too many states, the, the power grid is already nearly at full capacity. And in the next few months, that capacity will be exceeded. Industry experts know this and have been trying to sound the alarm for several years. Uh, critics are trying to uh, place the blame on climate change, as they do with everything else, in the form of extended droughts and heat waves. Those factors des- uh, definitely exacerbate the problem that this was going to happen in the next year or so, regardless. KSL says that forced power outages, also known as rolling blackouts, are initiated during these situations, which is what millions of Americans run the risk of seeing this summer to prevent long-term damage to the grid. Calling soaring gas prices an incredible transition, the president uh, is unapologetic about soaring gas prices, and State Farm is donating transgender books to kindergartners in Florida, just like a neighbor other creepy neighbor, State Farm is there, indoctrinating children. Well, National Review says State Farm, the household name of insurance company that has launched a program that would enlist hundreds of staff volunteers across the country to distribute LGBTQ-themed books to teachers, community centers, and libraries, explicitly targeting children as young as kindergartners. The project's goal is to increase representation uh, in books and support um, out communities and having challenging uh, important and empowering conversations with children age five and up. The email 
uh, says. That has since been withdrawn, but the books and the contributions have um, already been spent. The Washington Examiner reports the promotion of the project in Florida is notable because Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed into law a parental rights and education bill prohibiting classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation through third grade. And a Zoom call with reporters, Consumer Research Executive Director Will Hild noted that the materials promoted by State Farm and produced by the Gender Cool Project would be barred from use in public schools once the new law takes effect in July. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, Jeff Hainan, author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement. We'll also share the latest on the controversy within the Southern Baptist Convention. It grieves my heart and is cause for prayer for the body of Christ at large and in particular the Southern Baptist denomination. Well, Starbucks is closing all of their stores in Russia. This marks the most recent major business to leave the country. CNBC reports that after 15 years operating in the country, Starbucks will exit the market, joining companies like McDonald's, ExxonMobil, and British American Tobacco in withdrawing from the country completely. The coffee giant announced Monday that it will no longer have a brand presence there. Starbucks has 130 locations in the country, which account for less than 1% of the company's annual revenue. They are all licensed locations, so the Seattle-based company itself doesn't operate them. Daily Wire reports that the company also previously announced its support of the Ukrainian people through its Starbucks Foundation. The foundation has contributed $500,000 to World Central Kitchen and the Red Cross for humanitarian relief efforts in Ukraine, according to the company's March statement. Public school enrollment has decreased by more than $1.2 million since the pandemic. The Daily Caller reports that the data from the American Enterprise Institute's Return to Learn tracker found that 1,268,000 students had left public schools since the start of the pandemic on March in 2020. After school closures during the spring 2020 semester, enrollment fell by 2.5% in the fall semester of that year. In the fall of 2021, schools that returned to in-person learning saw some recovery in enrollment numbers, while those that adopted virtual learning methods suffered. The Daily Wire says there was very little public school attrition in states that did not lock down schools. In Florida, for example, public school enrollment has stayed strong despite considerable gains in homeschooling in the state, which suggests that new students are uh, are filling the spaces of those who left. California Governor Newsom is considering mandatory water restrictions there. The Los Angeles Times reports that Governor Newsom met with leaders of the state's largest urban water suppliers Monday and implored them to step up efforts to get people to reduce water use as California's drought continues to worsen. He warned that if conservation efforts don't improve this summer, the state could be forced to impose mandatory water restrictions throughout the state. Ten months ago, Newsom called for Californians to voluntarily cut their water use by 15 percent, but the state remains far from that goal. The latest conservation figures have been especially poor. Water use in cities and towns increased by nearly 19 percent in March, an essentially warm and dry month. Compared with a 2020 baseline, statewide cumulative water savings since July has amounted to 3.7 percent. 
Former Vice President Mike Pence is weighing a 2024 presidential run. The New York Times reports that after four years of service bordering on subservice, the increasingly emboldened Mr. Pence is seeking to reintroduce himself to the Republican voters ahead of a potential presidential bid by setting himself apart from what many in the GOP see as the worst impulses of his former uh, partner. He's among a small group of in his party considering a run in 2024, no matter what Mr. Trump decides. Now on Monday outside Atlanta, uh, the former vice president is taking his boldest and most um well, ambi- ambitious step toward uh, confronting his former political patron on the eve of Georgia's primary. The former vice president will uh, stumped for Governor Brian Kemp, perhaps the top target of Mr. Trump's 2022 vengeance campaign against Republicans who didn't uh, who didn't like him. Governor DeSantis announced a program to assist first responders in buying their first home. The Florida governor announced uh, Monday the launch of the Florida Hometown Heroes housing program to help Floridians in more than 50 critical professions purchase their first home. The new initiative will be available to state law enforcement officers, firefighters, educators, healthcare professionals, child care employees, and active military or veterans as part of a $100 million program. The governor's uh, launching the, uh, the program as soon as is possible. A judge has blocked Florida's social media law. The U.S. 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld a district court's injunction against Florida's social media law that sought to prevent larger social media companies from banning politicians on their sites. The impetus for the creation of the law was Twitter's ban of Donald Trump following the January 6th Capitol riot, with the argument being concerned for upholding the right of free speech. Ironically, the court cited infringement of the First Amendment for its ruling against the law. It is substantially likely that the law's content moderation restrictions and its requirement that platforms provide a thorough rationale for every content moderation action violate the First Amendment, the court found. Appellate Judge Kevin Newsom wrote, Put simply, with minor exceptions, the government can't tell a private person or entity what to say or how to say it. Florida's law is similar to a Texas law forbidding social media companies from censoring users over their expressed viewpoints. Yet in Texas, the case, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the law. The issue is now likely to head to the U.S. Supreme Court, as if they didn't have enough on their plate. Pro-abortion advocates are promising a summer of rage Last week, the administration issued warnings about the potential for pro-life violence, pro-life violence, following the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. The direction the, uh, of the warning made absolutely no sense, given the unprecedented SCOTUS leak indicating that Roe versus Wade will likely be overturned. Furthermore, there was the protesting and illegal harassment of six of the justices' homes by pro-abortion activists, as well as a slew of uh, leftist activists against churches. But just to highlight how off-base the administration's warning is, we now have the pro-abortion group Women's March promising a summer of rage across America that will be ungovernable. Well, these extremists are making it crystal clear for anyone listening where the threat of genuine violence will be coming from. And those threats aren't coming from those in the pro-life movement and a possible diversity tit for tat at UNC, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has been denied accreditation for its journalism school. And the reason given has little to do with journalism and everything to do with woke ideology. You see, UNC's Hussman School of Journalism and Media evidently failed to meet the left's racial 
a diversity bar. According to the student newspaper, the Daily Tar Heel, the council's site team has said the journalism school needs to continue to follow its diversity plan and initiatives in student and faculty retention and recruitment specifically. It also said the school needs to include diversity and inclusion within its curriculum. Reading between the lines, the decision likely has everything to do with UNC's controversial attempted hire last year of woke race agitator Nicole Hannah-Jones, who gained fame following the New York Times publishing her infamous work of fiction called The 1619 Project. Hannah Jones, who has no academic background, is offered a position for five years at an annual salary of $180,000 with an option for tenure after the initial contract was up. She rejected the offer. Uh, to due to a lack of a 10 year guarantee, while also citing viewpoint discrimination and race and sex discrimination as further reasons for her decision. It's now appears or rather it now appears that UNC's failure to land a dubious journalist as a professor has brought the wrath of higher education's woke committed radicals. And now the school will be paying the price as failure to gain accreditation will likely lead to disinterest from prospective students as well as prestige. Well, gas prices set records for two weeks straight, while the president seems to praise high gas prices as the incredible transition Americans must go through. The Supreme Court sided with Arizona against death row inmates, and pro-abortion Nancy Pelosi is ignoring her archbishop's ban and received communion. Documents reveal the FBI wrongly told its agents that Trump-Russia collusion claim had come from the Department of Justice. And the House Committee on Ethics said in a statement on Monday that it has um, opened multiple investigations into outgoing Representative uh, Madison Cawthorn, the Republican from North Carolina. The press release from the committee comes after Cawthorn was defeated in the Republican primary for the seat representing North Carolina's 11th district by Chuck Edwards, a three-term state senator and business owner. The investigations into Cawthorn will look into his involvement with a cryptocurrency and whether he had an inappropriate relationship with a staffer. Gavin Newsom urges aggressive water conservation and warns of statewide restrictions and backlash prompts State Farm to end the program donating trans books to schools. They've already paid for them. They've already distributed them. They're already out there, but they now are moving away from their commitment. And in a bit of humor, it's a miracle. Pfizer announces it's just um, happened to finish a monkeypox vaccine yesterday. Well, the truth is it wasn't Pfizer, but one of the others. Moderna has actually come up with a monkeypox or they're working on one. So it's not quite so uh, humorous or fictitious as originally thought. Now, we need to take a break, but we will return after news and traffic here at the top of the hour. And in our second hour, a conversation with Jeff Hainan, an uncommon guide to retirement. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Jeff Hainan, author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. We'll also talk about the latest with the Southern Baptist Convention, weighing how to respond to disclosures from a new report. The top news story of the day, of course, was the shooting death of students at an elementary school in Texas. We're talking about third, uh, second, third, and fourth graders. The average age is seven, eight, and nine. Well, that number was originally 14. We just learned that ha- that has been increased to 18 um, children who were killed in this shooting. Um, and one adult, one teacher. 
the uh, the shooter apparently was involved in a domestic incident in which his grandmother was killed. He jumped into a car. He drove to the school, abandoned the car, went directly to the school and began shooting indiscriminately, uh, ending the lives of now 18 students and one teacher. It's not clear if there are still others in uh, in hospital or being treated, but that's what we know at this point. This is the deadliest shooting since uh, Sandy Hook, and that's not a uh, uh, a title most uh, areas want to uh, want to brag about. The deadliest shooting. It's the twenty seventh shoot school shooting in twenty twenty two. Not all mass shootings, uh, and again, the second uh, mass shooting in ten days it was a grocery store. Um, in the, the most recent example of the same, the president is going to be addressing the nation at about 515. Uh, we will not be carrying that audio, but do want to let you know that that's available. You'll probably be able to pick it up online uh, once the president has uh, has finished as well. But wanted to bring you the latest. The death toll now at 18 students and one teacher killed in the Texas elementary school shooting earlier today. Well, just before the break, I mentioned that Moderna is testing a potential monkeypox vaccine. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said smallpox vaccine um, is uh, being used in monkeypox cases. So Moderna is testing potential vaccines against the monkeypox in a preclinical trial. The World Health Organization said on Tuesday there have been 131 confirmed cases, 106 uh, further suspected cases since the first was reported on May the 7th. If we have time, we'll get into who's most likely uh, to contract monkeypox, and it isn't your average person, but um, nonetheless, it's currently on the scene. Well, on this day in history, 1844, Samuel F.B. Morse transmits the message, What Hath God Wrought? from Washington to Baltimore as he formally opens America's first telegraph line. 1883, the Brooklyn Bridge opens in New York City in a ceremony attended by President Chester Arthur, and Governor Grover Cleveland. 1935, the first night game in major major uh, league baseball history is played after President Franklin Roosevelt activates a switch that turns the lights on at Crossley Field in Cincinnati. 1937, the U.S. Supreme Court upholds the constitutionality of the Social Security Act of 1935. 1994, four Islamic fundamentalists convicted of bombing New York's World Trade Center in 1993 are each sentenced to 240 years in prison, respectively. 2001, the state of Maryland dismisses its wiretapping case against Linda Tripp after a judge disallows most of Monica Lewinsky's testimony. 2018, after a Justice Department briefing, Representative Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee, says there's no evidence to support claims that there was a government spy in President Trump's campaign. Also in 2018, President Trump grants a rare posthumous pardon to boxing's first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, more than 100 years after what many see as a racially charged conviction for violating the Mann Act by traveling with his white girlfriend. 2019, Missouri Governor Mike Parson signs a bill that bans abortion on or beyond the eighth week of pregnancy without exceptions for cases of rape or incest, making it almost or rather among the most uh, restrictive abortion policies in the nation. Well, senior FBI leaders refused to identify Clinton attorney Michael Sussman as the source of evidence suggesting illicit back channel communications between the Trump Organization and Russia's Alpha Bank, concealing Sussman's identity from the rank and file agents as they investigated the alleged Russia 
Trump-Russia connection in 2016. FBI agent Ryan Gaynor testified Monday in Sussman's false statement trial. Sussman is charged with telling former FBI general counsel Jim Baker, James Baker, that he wasn't representing any client when he represented Baker with flimsy or presented him with flimsy evidence connecting Trump's organization with the Russia Alpha Bank shortly before the election of 2016. MSNBC, ABC News, NBC News and CBS News have nearly completely ignored the bombshell testimony in which former Hillary Clinton campaign manager Robbie Mook testified that Clinton approved the dissemination of materials to the media alleging a secret communications channel between the Trump organization and a Russian bank, despite campaign officials not being totally confident in the legitimacy of the data. Left wing media, so says Jason Rance, uh, outlets Shout from the rooftops that the disinformation matters and is a threat to democracy. Unless, of course, it makes Democrats or the press look bad, the radio host says. Well, the mainstream media had largely avoided covering the trial of ex-Clinton campaign lawyer Michael Sussman, who's been charged with making a false statement. Uh, The networks I mentioned have almost entirely ignored the trial since it began on the 15th of May and continue to black out um, after Friday's stunning Revelation. Apparently nothing to see here. It doesn't fit the narrative. Here's an interesting quote from Bill Maher. I don't often quote Bill Maher, but this is what he had to say. If something about the human race is changing at a previously unprecedented rate, we have to at least discuss it. Broken down over time, the LGBT population of America seems to be roughly doubling every generation. When things change this much, this fast, people are allowed to ask, what's up with that? It wasn't that long ago when adults asked a kid, what do you want to, when, to be when you grow up? That meant what's what profession someone needs to say it. Not everybody's about Not everything's about you, LGBT And it's OK to ask questions about something that's very new and involves children. The answers can't always be that anyone from a marginalized community is automatically right. Trump card, mic drop, end of discussion, because we're literally experimenting on children. Common sense should tell you that when you reverse the course of raging hormones, there's going to be problems. This isn't just a lifestyle decision. It's medical. Weighing trade-offs is not bigotry. Remember, the prime directive of every teen is anything to shock and challenge the squares who brought you up. It's why nobody gets a nose ring at 56. It's 56, rather. If this spike in trans children is all natural, why is it uh, regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. If we can't admit that in certain enclaves there was some level of trendiness to the idea of being anything other than straight, then it is not a serious science-based discussion. It's a blow being struck in the culture wars using children as cannon fodder. I don't understand parents who won't let their nine-year-old walk to the corner without a helmet, an EpiPen, and a GPS tracker, and, God forbid, their lips touch dairy. But hormone blockers and surgery, fine. Again, quoting Bill Maher. Well, we're just about out of time um, for this segment, but coming up, a conversation with Jeff Hainan, author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. The book is published by Moody and coming up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You know, people want to retire someday, but what does that mean exactly? We're all talking about retirement like it's supposed to be an endless vacation. But what if 
Like the majority of those facing retirement, you can't afford that kind of luxury. Or what if you just want something more from retirement? Some advocate for no retirement at all, but you've worked hard for decades perhaps, and arrest and reprieve sounds like a, a good idea. It's very appealing. What should you do? Well, my next guest has written a book, An Uncommon Guide to Retirement. Does God have a purpose for our retirement? Well, he says, yes, he does. Well, you can learn how to discern what it is by taking an uncommon approach. In the book, An Uncommon, or rather, In An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Jeff Hansen, or Hannon, he looks biblically and practically at the need for rest and purpose in retirement and teaches you uh, how to take a sabbatical rest in early retirement and much more. Planning retirement doesn't have to be distressing. Retire in a way that is God-honoring, purpose-filled, restful, and truly biblical. Well, my guest is the founder and executive director of Denver Institute for Faith and Work, an educational nonprofit that explores issues of faith, work, calling, and culture. He is a regular contributor to Christianity Today and has written numerous articles on finance, character, work, and calling. He's a nationally recognized voice on the intersection between faith and work, and I'm so delighted to have um, Mr. Jeff Hainan with us today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Georgie. This is an important subject because, um, especially in our culture, we aspire to retire. Uh, is it is it a, a uniquely Western concept that retirement is what we are entitled to at the end of our work life? And it is a panacea where we essentially are no longer res- accountable or responsible and we can just do whatever we please. Or is that a, a concept that uh, we find in other places around the world? Yeah, well, actually, we do see it in other places around the world. You see uh, in China, uh, there's a whole bunch of pensioners over age 65. Actually, Japan is one of the oldest uh, countries in the world. You see it across uh, uh, Europe as well as in the United States, too. It tends to be more of a developed world conversation, mm-hmm. uh, less of a developing world conversation, but it definitely is a conversation that as the world has gotten richer, this is becoming just a, a norm of people thinking about you know, retirement as this never-ending vacation. Now, the subtitle of your book is Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life, which implies quite frankly, that God does have intention for the latter years of our lives, whether we're working for uh, pay or not. What does the Bible have to say about these latter years and what might we expect in terms of our being productive for the kingdom and uh, and useful in other ways? You know, I think a really under, uh, under-talked about uh, topic uh, in our churches is the idea of becoming elders. So not only an elder in a local church or an office of a church, but historically, even the elders of Israel, there are people of wisdom and influence that uh, ruled and didn't necessarily do the heavy lifting of the young soldiers, but they certainly uh, uh, exerted influence on a coming generation. Uh, so I think the Bible has a lot to say about uh, rest, uh, renewing the heart as you move into retirement, and reengaging as elders that are, are not as interested in sort of just the, the retreat from life kind of mentality, but are reengaging in a way uh, that allows others to lead, but also their leading as well. As we're exploring retirement in the 21st century that's pleasing to God, where should we begin? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, in my book, uh, I recommend that for those who can, and usually when you start taking some sort of a pension, even if it's Social Security, I recommend that people start thinking uh, about retirement um, by taking a sabbatical rest. So a lot of folks have worked for a long time. It could be as a mechanic, it could be as a teacher, and really haven't had an extended season of pause and of rest. I think it's really important to reorient the heart toward God, to trust, to find our identity in Him first, uh, and then to take enough time to listen to God's call, because God might be calling you to work full-time or part-time or to sit with a friend dying of cancer. 
uh, or to take care of grandkids. I think there could be a lot of pathways forward, but I really think the concept of uh, rest and reengagement is important. We don't honor our elders like other cultures have and like we used to here. Uh, we oftentimes look at older people as no longer being useful. Do you think we have a problem in recognizing the value of those who are at retirement age and who might uh, want to reengage but don't see the opportunities um, that they should? Yeah, I think you're right. I think what we do is we segregate. We we segregate in our churches uh, via age oftentimes, uh, as well as in our culture. And so uh, people that are older, you know, live in your retirement community or move off to the side of communities rather than right at the center, which was more of a historical view. Mm-hmm. So I do think there is a, uh, I do think there is a big issue of how we see age. And, I, you know, you also see this too with uh, anti-aging creams and all sorts of other things that really see aging as a problem to be solved or, or, or a fix to be, to be fixed uh, in medicine. Uh, and the reality is we're all getting older uh, and this is not some a problem to be solved. This is something to be embraced as, we're humans, we're mortals, uh, yet uh, aging is a part of God's purpose. Mm. Before we talk about what retirement should look like and how we can approach it, let's consider for a moment what is lost when we disregard those who have a lifetime of wisdom and uh, mm. have the, the capacity to have influence, but are, are either uh, sidelined by their own decisions or are sidelined because their value is not recognized. What do we lose when we don't cooperate with those who are retiring and ready to serve. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good word. I I think we lose a tremendous amount when we don't do this. We lose wisdom from previous generations. You actually, uh, there's some studies out there uh, that in many ways, the very young and and, and the old were meant for each other. There's opportunities for mentoring and for caring for one another uh, and interdependence rather than sort of this vision of unfettered independence that we're really overlooked. So uh, one of the parts of my book, I talk about family, and I think not enough of us are, are really intentional with what are the legacy we want to leave behind. And if any of us have had a grandma or a grandpa that's really been influential, you know, think about think about an entire country or even a world of people saying, I'm going to leave behind something better. I care not only about my life, but about generations to come, and I'm going to invest my days in that. There's a lot to be, uh, a lot to be lost, but also a lot to be had for those that do re-engage and saying, I have much to give. You begin in your first chapter by uh, quoting from Psalm ninety-two, twelve through 14. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. I mean, what a lovely thought that our latter years are not to just simply um, to be wild away, but that there is purpose in God's kingdom for us if we acknowledge his word and seek him first, even in that season, to see where he might lead us. You write about uh, um, decoding the culture of retirement and that there are four postures. We've talked about, you know, this notion of let's vacation. But what are some of the other very common um, uh, views on the culture of retirement? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, that first one is uh, most common is let's vacation. That sees retirement never ending vacation that really doesn't satisfy. The second one I talk about is that the majority of Americans can't afford that, that there's a lot of folks that haven't saved, according to financial planners, uh, enough for retirement and, and end up can feeling quite resentful. And you have to ask the question, then what do I do right now if I don't have, I can't afford the vacation? Uh, the third view that I talk about um, uh, is uh, never retire is not biblical. So, of course, that's true. The concept of retirement is uh, is a new construct. 
Having said that, what's also not biblical is exhausted souls and exhausted lives. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that have uh, either either overworked or haven't had the opportunity not to work. Uh, and there's, I think, uh, a deep need in our culture for a rebalance in the work and rest. Uh, and then the fourth view I talk about is um, vacation isn't as satisfying as world changing. So there is a there's a there's a good movement uh, in many ways out there toward kind of civic uh, engagement and volunteering and changing communities uh, in retirement. But one of the things I question in this is we really got to take a look at the purpose because a lot of people move from a career they didn't like and they get into volunteering, working for perhaps you know a nonprofit, and they realize the same problems follow them, the same lack of meaning. Uh, and we have to really recognize that meaning uh, doesn't ultimately come from our work or our volunteering. Uh, it comes uh, for the reason why we're doing it. So. Uh, each of those four I kind of push on in the book and suggest an uncommon way forward. Yeah, yeah. I love that you write retirement may be just the opportunity to reassess these foundations of a fruitful life. And again, we don't often think about our latter years as being fruitful, but we have the potential and the opportunity to bear fruit that remains in ways that our working life did not afford. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there is a lot of opportunities for people to reassess and say, well, what what do I want to do? How do I, what kind of a legacy do I want to live? Uh, and what do I want to leave behind me in retirement? And uh, for those that are willing to say, hey, uh, yes, let's take a vacation, but not thinking that the vacation is necessarily going to fill us. Uh, there's opportunities to reassess saying, what do I want to leave behind me when I'm gone? Yeah. We're talking about the book, An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. My guest is uh, Jeff Hainan. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jeff Hainan. He is the author of An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. The question we often ask is, does God have purpose for me in my latter years? And this, this book answers from a biblical perspective that answer, or that question rather, in the if affirmative. So I'm, I'm excited to uh, consider that more and more of us are thinking about retirement uh, as a, a means of extending our purpose and uh, and influence. Now, we talked right before the break about uh, how we um, often look at uh, retirement in various ways, some unbiblical, some less productive than we might imagine, and that uh, endless vacation isn't the panacea we might imagine. You write in your second chapter about Sabbath. There is a, there is a, a prescription for a, a thorough rest, and that's an appropriate way to begin one's retirement, but it's not uh, the, the way to uh, continue throughout <laughs> Uh, whatever number of years one might have. Describe what a Sabbath is in the context of retirement. Yeah, so in my book, I talk about Sabbath not only in terms of one day of rest out of every seven, but the concept of a sabbatical. So a lot of folks, have, unless you're a pastor or academic, probably haven't thought necessarily of taking a sabbatical. But I think it's a deeply biblical idea. In Leviticus 25, there's this idea of letting the land lay fallow for one year out of seven. And in that year, it was a time of remembering, of recentering our identity, as God's people who are saved out of slavery from Egypt, of really refocusing our hearts and minds on God and trusting Him for provision for the future. Um, So there is a way to think about, I think, early retirement, less in terms of vacation and trying to vacate all the things we didn't like about our career, but more in terms of uh, moving into sabbatical rest 
um, in a way that can renew the heart, uh, heal past wounds, seek God's voice and his call for the next season of life. Mm. And that's an important element, too, is this calling. Um, When we're younger, we tend to seek God and his calling on our life. We may feel that once our work life has ended, uh, and I'm referring to our employment, that that calling has come to a close as well. Uh, How do we pursue uh, an understanding of God's calling on our life in that season, uh, particularly if it differs from what we may have uh, felt called to uh, during our working years? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I think some of the language around calling our culture needs a little bit of myth-busting <laughs> yes. uh, in many different ways. Calling oftentimes sounds like that ideal job, but the reality is none of us have ever had an ideal job. There's always problems, and there's thorns and thistles and whatever we've done. The highest call in the Bible is to love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor yourself. So I think if we take us about a caress and reorienting the heart and the mind to a God and His purposes— and caring for the well-being of others, I think that sets the foundation of my retirement is not about self-actualization. It's about surrender. It's about self-surrender to God and His purposes. And then doors can, I think, begin to open up. And when we start to talk about calling, we can start to ask questions like, okay, God, as I look out in the world, where does it seem that you're you're at work? Uh, We can ask questions about, like, what talents and skills and, and networks do I have to leverage for His kingdom? We also need to ask questions about pain and suffering. I think that's one of the big things that the elders in our community can offer is all of the difficulty and the pain that they've experienced and offer those not only back to Christ in worship, but to their neighbors and saying, this is what I've experienced. This is this is who I've become. And that is a way of kind of giving uh, wisdom and blessing to our community as well. So I think there is an opportunity. Also, a lot of folks um, that I interviewed for the book um, they use retirement as a, as a chance to pick up sort of the what I call the pearls uh, of their calling throughout their career. If you look at your life experiences and the things that you've done and where God's used you in the past, look at all these pearls on a string. You can say, okay, what are the pearls and how do they seem to be lining up? Um, and oftentimes there is continuity between those pearls and what God is calling you to in the next season of life. One of the thing you, uh, things you write about is um, writing your eulogy and your future you consider what you would like to have left and then what is necessary in order to achieve the very things um, that would take you to that, that point at the end of life. Yeah. 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 I write about that in the book and it's a little morbid, right? To think about when you're in a coffin, who's going to get your stuff and what are people going to say about you when you're gone? But that day is coming for absolutely all of us. And that is something to think about is what you're going to leave in your wake and what kind of a legacy um, there's an activity I think that's pretty simple that a lot of folks can do, and I lead educational nonprofit. We actually have young professionals write their eulogy as well, mm-hmm. of saying, what do you want to leave behind? And think about the different roles that God has placed you in. So as, as a worker, for me, a husband, as a father, as a son, what do you want to leave behind? And as I uh, wrote a eulogy, I, I realized I wanted to leave behind uh, a network of institutions and people committed to healing Christ's broken world. As a writer, I wanted to leave behind a written testimony to Christ's great love for the world. And as a husband and father, I wanted to leave behind a family committed to loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving the neighbors as themselves. So it's a simple activity, but thinking about, okay, even looking at your night, what would your 90-year-old self say? to how you're making decisions today. It's a humbling question, but one that can really clarify what's important and what's not. Yeah. And then you ask the question, what does that mean for my work? Are the things that I'm doing leading to that um, that eulogy? Or is it just a pipe dream that has no relationship to my priorities, how I spend my time, what I do with my resources? And it is a very sobering thought. 
am I working toward the very thing I say I aspire to be? Yeah, I write about that in both the chapter in work as well as in time. Uh, time changes a lot in retirement. You have a lot more time than you ever had before. And I say that it can sometimes feel like uh, jumping off a moving train. All things come to kind of a halt, and it kind of feels like moving time is like a lava lamp, days blobbing into weeks, into months. I think it's really important to sort of say time is a gift. God has given us time uh, for the sake of him and his kingdom and serving those he loves. And so start to reorient some of our time saying, okay, if I've said this, if I've said this about my calling, this is what I want to do. Like, what's the deadline? Who are, who are the communities that are helping keep me accountable? Where are the people that are either encouraging more toward just self-focused pleasure or, or really fruitful ways of caring for the world around us? I think uh, the communities we surround ourselves with are also really important. Mm -hmm. You also rightly put this into uh, the context of being older, um, that society doesn't often provide flexible arrangements to work in retirement, that health and family issues can impact our work more frequently in retirement. Ageism is a reality that social class and income will deeply impact your view of work in retirement uh, and so on. So, um, again, you encourage us to think about what that time in life uh, is, what the challenges might be and how that can uh, propel us forward in following God's plan for that season in life. Yeah. Yeah, I do write about that. Honestly, working in retirement, it could be 60s, it could even be 70s. It's oftentimes a strange fit. So there is oftentimes not uh, very good, even flexible retirement uh, plans that organizations or companies have. Oftentimes it's uh, your retirement party and you're working full-time. Now there's nothing there, whereas a lot of people would want maybe work part-time, there isn't some of those options. And so you go back and say, hey, I want to work 20 or 30 hours or even 15 hours. Uh, and seasoned professionals then have to take entry-level jobs that are more like part-time jobs. So we're in a season uh, in our culture, in our cultural history, where retirement in sometime in your 60s, this is not really old age. That's actually mm -hmm. a very different season of life. You have to prepare for 20 or 30 years now of, of living in life, but a lot of work situations uh, and um, uh, kind of even cultural institutions are really focused on sort of this idea of retirement as complete cessation of work, which a lot of people uh, aren't interested in. So there's opportunities. There are good questions to ask about work, part-time, full-time, which be paid, non-paid work. What is the actual context of reality? When do I mm -hmm. have to work because I need to for money? And God can meet us even in all the difficulties and pains of that. Um, but the reality is oftentimes it is just there's challenges, there's real-life difficulties in thinking about work and retirement. Yeah, yeah. The second part of your book focuses on wisdom. And while growing older, one might assume wisdom just naturally falls to us. Uh, wisdom, like so many of the things we've been talking about, really requires intentionality. Uh, so you write about time, health, learning, mentoring, and so on. How important is wisdom, and how do we assure that we are acquiring wisdom and applying it in these latter years so that our retirement, in quotes, uh, really does reflect God's purpose for this next season of life. Yeah, I, well, in one chapter I talk about learning, um, and I think learning and wisdom are closely connected in the biblical literature, especially, for instance, in the book of Proverbs. I think about people of wisdom, I actually reference Cicero, the great Roman st statesman, and when he was 84 years old, he was collecting um, records of antiquity, he was writing, he was studying Greek, he was gardening, he was speaking in the Senate, he was doing all of these things, because he was a person that had a, a purpose and a mission, but he's also a person that everybody looked to for wisdom in that community. And I think aspiring to that 
uh, is good and beautiful, yet oftentimes difficult. One of the key things that I think is important is not only what books you read or what you listen to, it's what communities you tr- you decide to join in. Uh, Proverbs says, he who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Uh, and I think there is opportunities to join all sorts of communities, uh, some as companions of fools, but there are communities of wisdom as well. And that could mean starting a course of studies. It could be a small group. It could be people at church, but really figuring out who am I going to surround myself with? Who do I want to become in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? It's a really critical piece of wisdom. Mm. Well, there's so much more in your book. I love the chapter on hope because there's a lot of fear surrounding this season of life that has so much uncertainty. There isn't the same structure as uh, one experiences during the younger years. Again, the book is titled An Uncommon Guide to Retirement, Finding God's Purpose for the Next Season of Life. I appreciate so much your writing uh, the book. I know you focus a lot on the intersection of faith and work, but retirement uh, being uh, one of the elements that you're covering. I appreciate the resource and hope our listeners will take full advantage of it as they anticipate or find themselves in the midst of retirement. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Georgine. Bye-bye. By the way, the uh, book is published by Moody and is available in bookstores. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show I have to admit, as I did at the start of today's program, it's been a very difficult day to talk about anything, given the fact that 14 students and a teacher were killed in Texas at an elementary school. This is the second mass shooting in 10 days in the U.S., 27 uh, school shootings in the year 2022. I'll leave it at that, but we certainly need to be praying for our country. This reveals so much about what's wrong in the hearts of men and women in our communities and how to address that from a public safety standpoint seems to have eluded uh, leaders all across the country. But the uh, the core issues of, of faith and restoration and sin uh, certainly stands in uh, stark relief uh, in times like these. Anyway, we talked more about it earlier in the program I won't belabor that now, but I did want to bring up a couple of things in this final segment. America's largest Protestant evangelical denomination, the Southern Baptist Convention, received a report it commissioned that investigated instances of sexual abuse by church leaders within the denomination. An independent firm was hired to investigate allegations of said abuse by SBC church leaders, as well as perform an audit regarding the practices of responding to those allegations. Well, Guideposts, that's the independent firm that was hired, produced and released a 288-page report. It covers nearly two decades beyond the numerous instances of abuse and the trial of very wounded people. One troubling finding was the SBC's leadership's decision in 2007 after it had begun compiling a list of pastors within the denomination who'd been accused of abuse to essentially cover it up rather than make it public. Now, the report noted that the Southern Baptist Convention's list named some 585 ministers, but found that few of the SBC's executive committee members knew the list even existed. Why many of the leaders were unaware of the list and therefore the extent of the sexual abuse allegations that had been raised against um, pastors uh, evidently had to do with the denomination's doctrine of church autonomy. 
it would seem that the first instinct of the leadership there at the time was to hide the sin. Well, in a 2007 memo, church attorney, um, whose name I won't bother to mention, explained the SBC's dilemma. I fear that a request from a Baptist general body to a church or a church's voluntary report to the general body will be argued to show that the church had a duty to report. And he added, if the church has a duty on the church's part to report to the general body, then the general body has control over the church and control of any kind um, breaks the principle and the, the legal shield, the church of church autonomy. Also, there were public image uh, and legal concerns that seemed to inform the leadership's decision making. As World Magazine reports, the Guidepost report emphasized that the desire to protect the image of SBC and shield it from legal liability drove the executive committee's response to sexual abuse allegations for decades. The former executive committee general counsel and attorney Uh, The SBC's outside counsel from 1966 to 2021 set the tone for handling allegations and focused on avoiding any potential liability for the denomination, the report said. That included keeping many of the elected members of the executive committee in the dark about the breadth of the abuse allegations brought to SBC leadership, end quote. Well, the keeping of many... Uh, Executive committee members in the dark leads back to the uh, unofficial 11th commandment not to publicly criticize other SBC's leaders. The hush-hush attitude toward those um, sexual abuse sins committed by ministers, or at least the allegations of said abuses, let the problem fester, also allowing for the abuse of more individuals. SBC leadership has responded to the report by expressing grief and calls for repentance. There are Not adequate words to express my sorrow at the things revealed in this report, says the president, Ed Litton of the SBC. I am grieved to my core for those who have suffered sexual abuse at Southern Baptist contexts, both for for, uh, those named and in the report and the many who are not. Dr. Moeller, um, he is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, called on the SBC at its upcoming convention to fully engage the findings of the report. The weight of truth calls for repentance, brokenhearted concern, and a concerned determination, concerted determination to make things right, he said. We will not get and will not deserve a second chance at this. End quote. Again, quoting Dr. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. While the report may, uh, may tarnish the reputation of the SBC in the eyes of many, that should not be the primary concern of the SBC. The report went on to say the primary concern needs to be the church's standing before God. One of the marks of the Christian is the fear of the Lord over and against the fear of man. In this instance, it appears that the fear of man rather than the fear of the Lord was guiding the leadership and got the denomination into this current situation. But with the Lord, there is abundant mercy and forgiveness for all those who do repent and turn from their sins. For ultimately, it is not the world Uh, That will be the judge, but Jesus himself. There's also great comfort and hope for the victims, though they may hear they may have been wounded by and then invisible to church leadership. That is not so with the Lord who sees them and helps them even now. Uh, Thomas Gallatin reporting on the challenge currently facing the Southern Baptist denomination. I recognize the temptation is. To breathe a sigh of relief. Well, that's them. I'm not part of that particular denomination. Therefore, it doesn't faze me. But the scripture says there is one church 
And we should all be grieved by what's happening and praying for resolution that honors Christ and brings uh, shines a light on the abuses that took place with reconciliation, redemption, restitution, whatever needs to happen. The fact that so few within the large denomination that is of late shrinking went um, unreported to many in leadership is a grievous uh, sin for the sake of keeping uh, the denomination out of the headlines um, is a warning, I think, to all church organizations, whether it's a single congregation or a denomination or the church, the body of Christ at large. We have an obligation first to the Lord and then to those um, that we serve within the church and the reputation left behind by the church or the denomination. I hope we're all praying for a resolution that honors Christ because the world doesn't make the same distinctions we might. They see this as another mark on the church, how we handle it, how we pray for one another matters. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank uh, Sam Maupin for engineering. James Blend is out on vacation. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. For the next couple of days, Food for the Poor will be my guest, and we will suspend our uh, ticket giveaway for the Maverick City concerts. But you can go to kpdq.com and enter to win tickets there. We'll resume our giveaway on Friday. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.